Hello, and welcome back to the Lightly Literary Podcast, the only literature podcast that is going to stay the hell out of local jails and prisons and all other incarceration systems, though we encourage all podcasters to do so. I must say we've chosen professions, Amanda, where it doesn't seem likely that that would happen. Yes. I mean, I would hope so, unless we're like one of those crazy types of teachers who decide that they're young students are attractive in some way (laughs) oh gosh well those horror stories crop up i feel like in the news every year there's some kind of new random scandal and i think hulu just did a series last year called a teacher or the teacher that was about that same exact i was gonna say conundrum it's really not a conundrum moral failing i guess is what i would say (laughs) (laughs) not really much of a not really much of a dilemma there If you're unsure why we are talking about going to jail, it is because this episode of the podcast is our part two book club episode on Janesville, an American story. Is it American story or tale? Story. An American story, yeah. Yeah, Janesville, an American story. Uh, We will today be covering the entirety of the book since this is part two. If you missed our part one book club episode on that that work, Janesville, an American story, you can go find that in the feed. It should be right below this episode. Today we'll be finishing up that book. We've read now the second half and have finished the entirety of it. And so our discussion today will take place over the entirety of that book. If you are new to the podcast and just stumbled on here, I'd recommend going to pick up a copy of this and reading it and then revisiting us later because we're going to be making references like we just did to the local jail in Janesville, that uh, the Rock County Jail, that no one should apparently go to. That is a pit of <laughs> despair only. Any thoughts, Amanda? I should have. Did I introduce you officially? Well, I'm doing it now. Co-host Amanda's here. <laughs> Hello. Always. Uh, uh, now a staple of the pod. Uh, Amanda, are you mm-hmm. excited to get back to Janesville, Wisconsin today? I am. Okay. Well, that that certainly makes for two of us. It's my hometown, so I have a fondness for it. Let's jump into our first segment of this book club. I did explain, we're, we're still new to this. I'm still getting my sea legs on the on the lightly literary formatting. I explained that we'll be talking about the whole book, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, we're doing we're doing yeah. the whole thing here, folks, and we're keeping this in too. I'm keeping I'm not ending this out. This is all going to stay in. It's happening in real time. Um, if you're new to the book club, I should probably be introing things more now that we've kind of reset things. At any rate, if you're new to the book club episodes, we like to do structured segments that give us talking points and give us different sort of things to analyze and different ways to think about the book and the work. What we're going to do now for the first segment, talking about this Janesville and American story, is we are going to pull from the back half of the book more of what we're calling cocktail party quotes or quotes from the piece of nonfiction we read that we just think would make for interesting party chatter topics you could bring up with friends or just subjects that we thought were frankly interesting or deserved i don't know a second thought or second opinion from from this nonfiction work i was going to call it a, a player in epic again like we did in part one but <laughs> we'll we'll call yeah. it a you know journalistic nonfiction account at any rate let's update our quotes then amanda do you have a new cocktail party quote you'd like to throw out there sure um this one i picked up on page 281 and it's uh the paul here that they're uh, talking about is paul ryan Paul is winding down, and the 750 business people and civic leaders are sated on their prime rib and moose and the words of their native son. The point is, Paul is saying, there's a reason why we have all these generations of families that stay in this town. It's the absolute warmth, the hospitality, the community, the we're-in-it-together kind of spirit we have here. That's what makes this town so great. And I skipped a couple of bits of his speech, but uh, what I... 
really enjoyed about this was just the image that it brings of this guy talking about how amazing this town is because everybody has a can-do attitude and we're all in it together while he's surrounded by people eating prime rib and moose and they're drinking these fancy cocktails and then there's people on the streets, teenagers who are living on the streets who are homeless, right? There's um, mm-hmm. the the food pantry or the, the Parker's Closet where kids are having to go and sneak in to get things that they need, the necessities, um, like shampoos and stuff like that. And it's just such a disconnect between um, what the people in this group are doing versus what's happening like on the actual streets. So I just thought that that was a really subtle way of pointing out the difference in attitudes and the difference in perceptions between really, it almost comes down to uh, the Republicans versus the Democrats in a lot of ways in, in this book. Yeah. And I think it's when you get into political sort of presentation, you got fundraisers and functions and whatnot. I mean, no matter what policies you're pursuing, that's just kind of the that's kind of the tone tenor, the vibe, and I guess the menu that will be at that those sorts of events. So it's yeah, if you want to walk into a town and say I'm here to uplift, you know, the the most struggling among you, the lowest among you. I mean, you're going to be doing it between bites of prime rib. Like it's just that's just political right. theater in a way, and it's yeah. And I think she shows that scene pretty well and shows the I guess you could say hypocrisy of it. I think the the Ryan stuff in the back half of the story becomes. The thing she documented pretty well is just not his falling out with the town, but how when you take on a national, when you want to become a national figure, the sort of boots on the ground understanding of the place you're from or are supposed to be representing just becomes really, I don't know, you know, when he's flying in for a fundraiser like that once, you know, every couple months, what true understanding does he have of the city? It's it's difficult right. to claim you represent a place you don't really live in anymore or at least i know he has a residence there um but or live in or inhabit as much i guess right and yeah that quote was pretty pretty potent let me pick one from i got one that's a of a similar tone of a similar maybe dilemma or something and it's from 261 it's about mary the banker who tries to help the four Janesville organization, like organized businesses and stuff. Um, this is when B- BMO Harris takes over her, her used to be local bank. And it says in one Janesville, Mary Wilmer is in a whirlwind. She's in good spirits. The initial work of converting her corner of M and I bank into BMO Harris is starting to ease. And then later it talks about how she works for premier banking and it is offered to BMO Harris customers in the mass affluent sector which is a quote, with savings in the range of $250,000 to $1 million. And then this is a quote. At BMO Harris, we believe a higher level of financial achievement demands a higher level of attention, the bank's marketing material says. In her work, Mary will be striving to improve the service uh, of the well-off or to service the well-off. And I think, I don't know. I mean, she's one of the only people in the narrative who comes out better than it started. I mean, there are some who come out maybe even and there's some certainly who come out worse so i don't know if i'm just targeting this quote because it just it's very stark compared to the rest of just the contents of the book but i think it does go to show and you know she's kept her optimism through this whole thing she's painted as kind of an optimistic figure for for local business orgs in the town and everything but it is in a in a world that's becoming more polarized it's hard to watch somebody spout the rhetoric when her new job is just managing 
the most wealthy accounts that the bank has. And I don't, yeah. there's not really a reckoning and I, I'm not sure if there needs to be a reckoning or if we need to get her, you know, we, I don't know if we need a follow-up interview with her to be like, what, look at what you've done. I mean, it's, you know, you move on in your career, you get promoted, she got promoted. I, I, I don't know if there's fault anywhere to go around other than in a system that is becoming more, uh, more polarized. And I think that moment is just sort of another symbol of how, things have become, you know, in Janesville and in, of the world, even if, if Janesville is just emblematic or sort of embodies it, it's just becoming more polarized and further apart. I don't, nothing maybe embodies that more than her. It just felt so disconnected at that point. Yeah, I think it's, that's a good quote to pull out, especially when you compare it to like the discussions earlier in the book of like Parker Pens and GM, even before they pulled out. It was a, a community-based thing. So like one client didn't necessarily, even if you were wealthy, you weren't taking care of more so than um, your workers or the people around you, right? So it, I think that it shows a, a big change in mentality for business specifically where it's, oh, you pay me more. I'm going to give you more attention because I want more of your money. The older businesses seemed, yeah, they wanted money. They wanted to make a profit, but they... We're also using that for services to other people within the community. So I think it's it's a nice kind of subtle way of pointing out the difference in the way that business is run now versus the way that business was run back then. Yeah, and I think this is, if we want to spiral this conversation into something bigger, or I guess amplify it to, into something larger, and I don't think the book addresses this at all, by the way, but if we wanted to... I think this could be when you look at, you know, well, where are companies based out of how many of them are massive, even multinational companies versus true local businesses? I mean, she used to work for a a Janesville only bank. Like, think of that. I mean, how many people even bank with banks that are in one city anymore, let alone one small town? It's they're all going to be national banks before long. And that's we're going to be have like five banks or something. And so this Mm -hmm. this whole condensing and this whole. I guess you could talk about monopolies in that same conversation, but it's this idea of, yeah, I don't know how attentive any one company of that size can be. I mean, they're they're just as unwieldy as, as government entities in this book, which don't come across well either. And so yeah. when you have these massive unwieldy entities, I don't know how responsive they can be to small local communities or issues. And again, I don't think the book addresses that in any way, but I think this moment was enough of a disconnect where you think... Yeah, I don't, I don't know if this person's fortunes are at all tied up in the town anymore. I mean, I know they're doing a lot of good work to help and they're trying to, you know, get the businesses going and everything. But, you know, when the when your paths diverge that much, it just seems like at some point, can you really connect anymore? I don't know. It's it's a challenge. Any other quotes for the cocktail party, you think? Any others you want to throw out there? Uh, sure. Um, I also chose not so much a direct quote, but... Um, just the idea of on pages 159 and 160 um, when Scott Walker, the governor of Wisconsin during that time um, tried to pass legislation that was like anti-union and stuff, especially like getting rid of teachers unions specifically. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, One of the the teachers, the one who started the Parker closet dairy um, she told the story of dairy's mom um, going to the doctor and, you know, small chatter or whatever, and um, remind the doctor that Derry is a teacher. And he just rolls his eyes. And she said, what's the issue? And he was like, well, if you can't say something nice, then you shouldn't say anything at all. I'm, 
when I read that part, I was like, are you for serious? Really? A doctor who makes gobs of money and who relies on education to become a doctor is going to be putting down a teacher who we can all agree that teachers are underpaid and overworked. I was like, what? <laughs> I, yeah. My mind was blown. This whole chapter, that whole chapter of like everybody getting like aggressive towards teachers, right? The the story of like the super the the principal or the superintendent in the grocery line who is being verbally attacked while shopping. It's like Right, right. What? <laughs> well, and it's uh, and that is again another thing that Goldstein in the book documents perfectly. Scott Walker blew that up into an absolute warfare. Like then the book talks yeah. about it. They talk about people going over the the border to avoid a vote, then there's like a midnight vote that they tried to undo it, you know, and there's all kinds of insane political tomfoolery would be the most probably the most generous way to put it going on all kinds of absurd maneuvering and that was his doing entirely i mean there's no there it wasn't like there was some massive it wasn't like he was unblocking some kind of buildup in the state or that the state was in some kind of tipping point and he just tipped it over like he basically invented that fight and then saw it out i mean it was like yeah it was his number one policy thing as far as i recall it i don't think i was living in the state by that point uh, I just graduated college, but my mom, I remember getting updates from her about it all the time. And the protests at the Capitol were a really huge deal. Yeah, that, it's a fascinating point, right? You and I both worked in ed, and so have you know we have our own preferences, biases, and such. I really don't think we can sleep on the contingent of people, though, that the teaching thing, really it's the summer break thing that I think some people they have such a resentment for it and we'll just never get over it. And that's ignoring the fact that a lot of teachers, at least early in their careers, most of them I know work second jobs in the summer to make more money. I guess once right. you've elevated your pay enough, like you don't have to have that concern anymore. But I, yeah, I don't know any teachers when I did my five years who were in that same window that didn't have another job. Unless yeah. I actually knew a couple that were supported by their parents a bit. So maybe them. But for the most part, everyone's working second job. But yeah, no, that resentment is out there, even if it's a bit quiet. I, not many people want to say it to their face because if, especially if they have kids, they don't want to. It's like, what are you going to make fun of your babysitters, basically, who babysit your kids for eight hours a day and ideally help get them <laughs> yeah. to college uh, in the meantime? And I so I think from that contingent, you don't hear it as la- out loud as much. But gosh, yeah, I feel like that's silent that silent disapproval of the summer break thing. Of course, uh, the irony of that being most teachers would happily give up the summer break model. I was certainly one of those who tried to champion not doing a summer break anymore. But anyway, I don't want to go too far outside of the book. But yeah, that the Ed debate stuff can get... I don't know. I guess it's not supposed to be as polarizing as he made it, but the way he fought the union, that's, that's what he wanted. So yeah. And that's, yeah, I guess it trickles down like that. So other people adopt those attitudes. Anything you want to yeah. say in defense of the, of the great American teachers, Amanda? <laughs> you know, stake, <laughs> stake out your defense here? I mean, like, it's just, it, it blows my mind. There's supposed to be, right, people are like, oh, we, we need education in order to get these good jobs. Even in the book, right, is is advocation, even the, the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, like the the one thing that they could agree on was the idea that retraining yeah. education would pull people out of the recession. Education. Yeah. Yeah. But you're going to like take away certain rights and then you're going to like look down on the people who are doing the educating. That doesn't make any kind of sense. Like yeah. what <laughs> my mind was blown. I understand that people are, especially during that time, 
they were stressed out, they were anxious, and anybody who had a solid job, of course, like they would be resentful. Right. And I could totally understand that. But the the scene with the doctor who is actively working, looking down mm-hmm. on a teacher who is paid hella tons less than he or she is. Right. Like, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. It's there's uh there's a nasty political cycle that got interjected into some otherwise yeah, common sense professional just like cycles of how work goes. Yeah, yeah. it's not pretty. Um let me pull a quote here about working as well, or sort of, you know, ideally the end of working. This is a, my final cocktail party quote. It's just about getting a job after you graduate from a program. It's about Mike, who I think went back for a PR degree. And so it said mm-hmm. this paragraph on one 68 says, Mike is surprised that he that all he has gotten are rejection letters when he has heard anything at all. Company after company telling him that they are looking for someone with a bachelor's degree and three to five years experience in human resources management. He understands that companies can afford to be choosy when so many people want these scarce human resources jobs, want any job, yet Mike can't help but be nervous that three days after graduation, he hasn't gotten a single callback. There's a lot wrapped up in a quote like that that could make for a good discussion. I think probably the thing... At least it speaks to people of our generation and education levels. Well, I guess you, you even beyond mine, because you have a master's and everything. But the whole job hunt post graduation, endless failure, never hearing anything—it's why people tell you, you know, you're probably going to get your jobs not through applying, but through back channel networking and stuff. It's you know, it's like you're more most likely to get a job offer from just meeting somebody or knowing someone than to just cold applying. And so. Seeing that part hurts because, yeah, you somebody in his position who had had a lot of work experience and then finally got the degree he was told to get is just told, like, you got to you got to do more, you know, and it's you see these absurd requirements all the time. I feel like this happens a lot in the computer engineering world, which I'm not in. So mm-hmm. I, I only see these things online, but the jobs will list absurd requirements for like an entry level position. You know, it'll be like yeah. this is the bottom of the barrel. You're barely an intern. And by the way, five years experience minimum and you got to know all these coding languages and yada yada and that's I get that's one specific professional example but this I feel like is emblematic of that too where once you think you've kind of checked all the boxes as it turns out there's more you could have or should have done maybe mm-hmm. if that's even possible so I thought that quote was I felt the frustration of that anyway yeah I, I think that's a great quote to kind of show that no matter how much effort you put into something and you're doing the thing that you're told to do and that you logically conclude like, yeah, this is the thing that marries well into like my interests and also my previous experience. And then being kind of turned away almost from several opportunities because there are other people who are vying for that same job who maybe know the person or whatever. Yeah. I I think that that's a great point that you can plan all you want to, but it doesn't always work out the way you want it to, especially if you're, Especially if you're older, to be honest, mm-hmm. right? Like you're starting a whole new career. People say, you know, oh, like the the young ones, they have a hard time with it or whatever. But they're young, they're they're malleable, so people do want to hire them. Whereas older people, you have to typically teach them things. Untrain, and, yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. So it's it's harder, I think, for older people to to start. And one a new thing career. the book makes clear at every turn. With Mike, with some of the other people I can't remember now, the cast of characters, almost all of the adults who were in the GM system or the leader system or whatever 
could probably get work if they're willing to relocate. But the the problem with adult retraining and reeducation, this is another thing the book makes quite clear, is if you are firmly, because you have a family or for whatever other reason, if you are firmly rooted to a place, if you're not willing to like pick up your life and just go, that I mean, that's going to amplify your job troubles enormously. You kind of just have to ebb and flow where the market pushes yeah. you. And that's those Janesville gypsies that are documented yeah. pretty well. By the way, the chapter, we can talk about some tech stuff now, but the, the chapter where the, they were describing his drive home with his buddies, I thought for sure, car accident, they're all going to die. I think it was because, I don't <laughs> yeah, know what, what was the tone of it, or there were some like <laughs> somber landscape descriptions in there or something. And we've talked about this in part one, but her style isn't overbearing or anything, but there was something about the almost casual vibe of that chapter that I just was like, man, this is it. And it could have just been because it was near the section where the woman committed suicide. Or I don't know if it was before or after that, but there were certain things building and that I was just, man, that chapter I read on the edge of my seat and just felt, I was just ready for doom. I just felt so nervous. I don't know what that was. (laughs) I I was like, man, one of them's going to die when they dropped off the first guy. And it was just um, Matt and the other guy who was driving I was like, oh, man, you know something bad is going to happen. Like, their car's going to flip or yeah, something. Yeah. <laughs> I was just, I was waiting for but, it. And yeah. that's, a, of course, of happened, course. That's yeah. so well documented. <laughs> she she understands that long-term commuter, long, not long-term, long-distance commuter lifestyle really well. And that's a lot of Janesville families I know, if not firsthand, then secondhand, were given that up. You know, it's like, well, do you want to move to Texas? We'll get we'll get you your 30 year pension in Texas, but you got to go. And so you're just the market forces that are so much bigger than you just push you around either. And you either get to kind of go with it and get in, you know, allow that to happen. You kind of move with the waves, as it were. Or if you want to be Mm -hmm. if you want to stay where you are and you really love it and you're committed, then. You're staring down something so much more challenging. It was difficult to watch that happen, too. Yeah. Any final quotes or thoughts before we move on to another segment? Uh, Excellent. Nope. I'm good. We're going to do another kind of analytical segment up top, and this is going to be a new one, so I'll try and explain it carefully. This is going to be what we're calling imaginary essay, as you and I have just said in this episode anyway. We both have education backgrounds, and I don't think we could resist doing a segment like this, though... I think we're going to do kind of the fun, imaginative version, and also, crucially, as we all know, when you're given an essay, or maybe you have to assign one, or write one, or whatever you are, teacher, learner, whatever, student, there's a certain fun in talking out some essay ideas and almost planning or outlining. It's the writing that's the hell, you know? It's like the, the thought work can be fun. You know, you're just spitting ideas. You're just rolling with it. You're just, you know, getting creative. Writing is the hard part. So what we've decided to do is not do the hard part. And you and I have planned one essay prompt for the other person. And we will have the that person respond to it. So you made an essay topic for me, which I've put some ideas down for. And the same, I made an essay topic for you, which you've put some ideas down for. And this is essentially our way of kind of trying to synthesize a lot of the things in the book think through some big ideas, talk through some big ideas that the text presented, and also, you know, just do some teacher shit because we'd like to do that. <laughs> and I think, I don't know if you agree yeah. with that assessment, but it's it's sort of like at the beginning of a class, you get the syllabus and you're thrilled about the reading list, but then at some point in the middle of the semester, you're like, oh, but I actually have to read some of these, huh? Or, you know, not uh, not some, but like, oh, there's this really hard one in here I don't want to read, but the idea of it was great. I feel that way about essays too sometimes. 
Yeah. Well, let's get into it then. I will present mine to to you first, and I'll give you as long as you want to talk through your your ideas for it, your prompt, whatever. You, and you don't have to speak in any coherent way. I certainly don't hope the listeners expect us. We're not going to do like a thesis and then paragraph one, paragraph two. It's more of just here are my general thoughts about how I would approach this essay if it were given to me. And so I'll give mine to you, Amanda, and yeah. then take as much time as you need, and I'll you know give you some follow-up thoughts i could maybe grade your outline you know if we really want to <laughs> be the most annoying no, Ooh, no, no. my outline is like big <laughs> paragraph yeah the stream of consciousness <laughs> style good luck brainstorm style no bad ideas in the brainstorm no we're definitely not going to push your teacherly instincts that far anyway my prompt for you is this wisconsin's motto corny as it may be and it's in the book too is forward just the one word forward in this account in janesville an american story who do you think teaches us the most about or embodies the motto the most? In terms of labor, what can we learn in this work about how best or best not to move forward? So what do you think? So uh, the first half of the question about who best embodies it, I actually thought that the teenagers did, uh, specifically, specifically Kezia, I believe that's mm-hmm. how you say her name, Kezia and Alyssa. Um, first of all, they were just so badass. Yeah. Like they yep. are amazing. They're working like what six jobs between them? Seven just jobs between me the two shame. of them. I felt so embarrassed about my life when I was reading <laughs> about them. <laughs> it's so embarrassing, man. <laughs> <laughs> Taking all the AP classes yeah. that they can, and you know, preparing for college, which means writing essays, filling out those applications on like. Uh, common app and stuff like that and and having to do particular interviews and everything else that goes along with the college application yeah, process yeah. and helping to pay for bills and buying their own used cars so that they can get coupon to work and, and also helping yeah coupon clipping and taking care of their younger sibling while also maintaining stable relationships with their boyfriends. Like, it's wild, man. It's wild. <laughs> I, I don't think a book has made me feel such shame in a, in a long time, honestly. I remember it in high school, and I, I always thought this was a good arrangement between my mom and I, or, or my mom and me and my brother, too. But she was big on, like, you don't have to have a job. School is your job. Like, we, you know, I can cover petty expenses, and, like, you know, she was the caretaker. She took care of the food and such. And so it was kind of just, like, make sure school, you're on top of everything, That's the agreement. Like, you don't have to get it. If you really want more money, like, I didn't have a car in high school, for example. That's something she would have said, well, go get a job then. That's fine. Um, And I just thought, like, yeah, we'll share. It's not a big deal. I don't need to, you know, car every day. And so reading about these teens was just, man, I thought they were probably the most impressive figures in the book straight up. And I, yeah. They really were. And they were so young. And and what they were in. Well, they. What was it, like sixth grade or something like that? But when yeah, it first or happened? early high school. I think the Parker Closet stuff must have been ninth grade because that's a high school, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. The par- But their dad losing their job was when they were significantly younger because they didn't understand the significance of it. They just thought he was on vacation. Um, but the reason that I chose them versus any of the adults, not to say that the adults also didn't work their asses off, because they did, but what i thought as far as the 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 motto of forward was not just the adults often would kind of um try to scrape together enough to do enough for the present without actually like planning for the future as far as um what they what they could do to improve certain situations and stuff like that so for example with matt wopat in the story mm-hmm. um he's 
he he takes he goes back to school for a little bit, but doesn't do any of the research beforehand to figure out, well, the the job that I'm looking at getting after I graduate, are they hiring where I want them to? No. Whoops, I should probably not do that. Mm-hmm. Or to do more research um, to figure out what the best path is. And instead, he decides to become uh, a Janesville gypsy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, just like the... Casey and Alyssa's dad too has like a lot of the same issues where he jumps from job to job, but doesn't plan forward beyond what the next job right, is. Right. Um, whereas Casey and Alyssa, they're maintaining the present just like the adults are, but they're also planning for their future as well by doing the necessary, doing those extra necessary steps in order to get their college degrees and stuff like that. And even if they didn't want to do college, they probably would have done research on what would be the best jobs for the future anyway, even without a college right, degree, right. right? So they were they were planners at heart, and they they saw the way that their parents were struggling because their parents didn't plan for the future like that. So I thought that that's what the key difference was between the teenagers and the adults is that the teenagers were actually planning way beyond just immediate future and present. I wonder if it's, could we write it off on things like youthful energy, optimism, anything like that? Because you're right, I think so many of the adults <laughs> in the story, with the, maybe the big two exceptions being the women who end up working at the jail, and at this point I'm just not going to remember anybody's names. Teresa, maybe? I don't, Christy? Chris, Christy's the one who committed right. suicide, and um, Barbara. Barbara. Okay, and, Barbara. Then, and well, one for the obvious reason, the suicide tragedy but then the other one leaves too right she picks up another career at some point yeah other than those two mm-hmm. who tracked out a clear path made it happen followed up with the degree etc you're right a lot of the other janesville adults are sort of just i want to stay i want it to be like it was or i just want to keep a stasis and i don't want things to change too much and i don't i don't know if i want to move forward quote unquote it's more i want to keep it how it is or how it was and they're just sort of left floating right. for that reason you know for better or worse usually for worse so i think it's a really compelling case i think you'd be you're right you'd be hard pressed to find a better group or a better couple of individuals in the story anything else you want to say about them or their journey just that man they're amazing like kudos to you guys <laughs> yeah yeah like, yeah wow. pretty stunning pretty stunning i was glad the book stuck with them as carefully as it did they maybe ended up being the most documented yeah. Perhaps. I don't know if that's true, but pretty close to it. A lot on them in the book. It, yeah, definitely the the last half there, they featured in several of the chapters Excellent. for sure. Yeah, that's a great pick and a good good response. I feel like in the world of this imaginary essay, you'd have, I mean, there'd be a ton to write about, about them in the book. And to contrast them with some of the adult stories, too, is really quite meaningful. I'll just... I'm going to write yeah. it out. Those kids, they're just, a, you know, it's opti- kids' optimism. It's that youthful energy. You know, they can do anything, <laughs> take on the world. The fact that they were working, like, three jobs they don't while, need sleep yet. Sco- while going to school, though, is just so shaming to me. <laughs> it's just so embarrassing. <laughs> yeah. It's like, man, I was, like, the laziest person on earth, I think. <laughs> but there, I know there's oh, – this is the final thing I'll say outside of the text, maybe on this point. But there is some psychological study, and I remember when I was a teacher, I noticed this in some kids, but that kids in really unstable environments and some kind of, and kind of traum- traumatic scenarios, traumatic lifestyles, it's sort of – for some kids, it has the effect of like rapidly increasing their maturation, at least like emotional maturation, because 
it, it was always this became not a joke, but sort of a thing that me and the other sixth grade teachers would look for in that if you had a really mature sixth grader, like hyper mature, like they want to talk to you about your weekends and like talk about your favorite brand of wine or whatever. I'm joking about that, but you get the gist of like a really adulty <laughs> stuff. Like where are you shopping or what do you, you know, like what TV shows should I watch? What do you like? I'll watch what you watch. It was, that's actually like an alarming sign. Usually like that's a sign that they're probably being forced into a level, an emotional level of maturation that they should not be pushed into yet, where they're, they probably have to do something at home, like take care of their sibling or they're like a caretaker almost, or maybe they cook for themselves. All It's just, they're, they're taking on responsibilities that an adult would, should probably hoist at that age. So anyway, they, they had a bit of that going on, but at least their mom was around and their dad stayed employed, I think. Right. Except for maybe a couple times. Yeah, he before he would leave the jobs, he would have a job lined up, except yes, for like right. at one time he didn't. It, yeah, but the mom also worked at one of the same jobs as I think Alyssa. Yeah, nursing home or something. I, for, I forget. Um, she did the car dealership. Oh, okay. Yeah, clerical work and stuff. Excellent. Yeah. Well, it's a great yeah. answer. Do you want to throw your essay at me now? I'll put me under the uh, under I the sure hot spot. Will. Sure. We were talking about some of it earlier, actually, in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, Education is a major component of both the book and government policy for finding jobs during a recession or any kind of time of layoffs. Um, Based on what we've read, what is the reality of relying on education to improve your circumstances? And why do you think that if we need education, as we've been told, Walker and other policymakers have no issues with taking educators for granted? Yeah, I think... So there would be a bunch of ways we could attack this one or that I would plan this one out. To start with the Walker point and like the the really broad attacks on Ed, this is, and you and I are in the humanities, so this is a common thing you have to prepare yourself for, but it's, if people love talking about job training, they love obsessing over the idea that they want technical job training. It's kind of like the idea of why should a 10th, 11th, or 12th grader be reading English literature if they never are going to read a book again in their lives kind of a thing, where it's like, why are we giving people a really broad, um, holistic, kind of multifaceted education when at some point they just don't care? You know, like, why are you teaching the kid chemistry in 11th grade when they're going to go work at the gas station? Like, they, they don't need to know that kind of a thought. I think the defense of that, the book doesn't hold up anyway, so I'm just not even going to bother with that defense. But there is a defense you could say about why American education is that way and why we don't job train kids in the ninth grade or whatever. The one thing the book, I think, makes clear, though, is federal encouragement, grant funding, all that stuff to get people into tech colleges like Blackhawk is great. It's a great start. But unless the kind of school has a a post-grad thing paired up with it, it can be really frustrating. I think the statistics in the book speak for themselves, right? I think it was like a third of the Blackhawk grads have a job, whereas every other GMer who didn't go to Blackhawk, most of them have jobs. Now, the quality of those jobs is a different issue. We could argue about that separately, but so it's like when you pair up this job retraining push without guaranteed work at the end of it, you're just leaving it up to the people to figure out on their own and some will research better than others. A lot of them thought they would get jobs for the energy company and then those fell through. And it's like, well, what did you want me to do? I researched, I picked a field that had openings and those openings are gone. And so what, you know, again, to me, the obvious solution for them then is, well, you have to move. You have to follow where the market tells you to go. And that's really frustrating because, why should we, you know, why should we get told instead of being helped and encouraged and supported where we are? And so I think that's part of it too, right? Mm-hmm. Like the job training stuff was, it's a fascinating world to learn about and the, the tech school stuff. 
And so, yeah, the, and like it says on 169, so there's there's nearly 2,000 people who studied at Blackhawk, and only one in three has a steady job. And so, and even then, most of those jobs don't pay as much as their old job. And so there's just no... There's right. no silver bullet there. I don't think the and the book is very real about that. And I think the follow up point I'd want to make about that and the, the Janesville Gypsies are good evidence of this. But it could just be that the new, more international, more globalized world of labor that we have inherited in the 21st century is a flexible kind. Like it could be the norm that if you want to keep the quality of life you have, you have to move. Like it's if market forces are just going to be allowed to run rampant and push people around. I guess that's the answer is you got to follow where the labor goes. You have to follow where that goes. Mm -hmm. And I think as soon as we ask or say that we hit up against a massive other issue that the book doesn't address, which is then international markets. Well, what you want to move to Mexico city then like a place I don't speak the language. I'm not a citizen there. I mean, people come to the U S to labor like that. And we know that there's immigrants from various places who come and go all kinds of places for work. But that's a whole nother, I don't even want to open that can because it's, the book doesn't really address that. But I think that's where that would naturally go. You have to look at the gypsies in this case and just think they're kind of the model for how to keep the quality of the job and the work level the same and the pay the same, right? Was there any other example you could think of that kind of was the answer? Yeah, I think yeah. that's it, yeah. The final point I'd make in an essay about that question would be shine, which is a uh, fascinating new introduction to rock county that we didn't haven't really talked about in any of the quotes yet shine is that tech nuclear fission company is that right (laughs) nuclear something they're going to be doing something with atoms disassembling or reassembling them it's some very particular process that requires a lot of specificity it requires very set conditions and you can perform some science and then you get some kind of energy or byproduct is it that they use it for medical stuff i think I think it's medical, yeah. Yeah, and so I think that's an interesting example, though, and Mary Mary's job at the bank kind of pairs up in this way, where it's like, well, if that is the future of the labor that is considered stable, right, and Mar- of all, in the whole story, is anyone's more stable than Mary's? Well, she works in the finance sector. She's right. a bachelor's degree, maybe even a master's. I don't remember if they say, but... And so it's, you know, then it's like, well, you want that white collar life. That's what you have to go attain then. If you want to get out of this massive push and pull, these market forces, this, you know, gale force destruction of like, you can just be told to go whenever, wherever they want to, wherever the cheaper labor is or the more convenient labor, like you have to rise above it then. It's it's a very in-out system. It's like, well, you're either stuck in it or you can get out, but to get out, you need to be, you need to be in finances. Congrats. Like, hope you like finances. Otherwise... You're going to get pushed around more. You know, it's not like finances right. are immune to it either. And so I think, yeah, and then we look at Shine, right? Advanced engineering, advanced technological stuff, advanced bio, biological, bioengineering. I think that's, you know, you'd have to get into a company like that, much smaller company. You know, it's not going to have, it's not going to have the 30 year pension GM jobs for an uneducated laborer beyond high school. Like that, and we talked about this in part one, but this book is just a chronicle of how that world just will not exist probably in 50 years. It's we're we're going to have to invent some other new economic structures to kind of redefine the world and redefine how you know who labors and how they labor. There's when tech advances to those levels, it's those jobs are just not going to exist. So, hopefully we can have some people thinking of humane and equitable and good ways to answer those questions, but I think the shine would be a part of that answer too just because I think what they said is like, well, we're going to get 200 jobs in, but they're probably just going to leech grad students away from Madison. That's where the big university is. Right. Like they're, they're not going to go to, they're not going to get those 2,000 people who went to the dollar uh, store when they opened the dollar store warehouse in Janesville. 
Those right. 2,000 people who showed up desperate for the 16 hour, uh, uh, $16 an hour line worker wages, like the, the shine type of industry, type of company, as promising as it is, uh, who knows how many people in Janesville can even work there? Probably almost none. Right. Like how many people are going to be qualified to work there? You know, they're going to be looking to Madison and other like big schools around colleges, and they're going to try and leech the work from from those places because they need extremely high levels of education. So that is my very long winded answer. As we've now learned, I like it. This segment was just an excuse so I can talk completely. You know, train running off the tracks, but ho- hopefully that was <laughs> hopefully that was a coherent response to to your question. Do you have any follow up thoughts, or what do you think? Yeah, um, I was just thinking too, like with with Shine and your point about how uh, the idea of labor is changing too, especially in Janesville, where it was a factory town, but the things that are yeah. going into it are going to require more bachelor, master's degree, and even PhDs if you're going to be working in that particular field. Right. And Mary's group, the um, Forward Janesville. Uh, forward Janesville. Mm-hmm. While they're bringing in businesses, the types of businesses that they're bringing in aren't necessarily going to help the people of Janesville who already live there. Yes, they'll bring in new people, but it doesn't necessarily focus on the people who already live there. So I think right. that's a really interesting point to make with that. Yeah. Yeah. And these labor issues. It, one of the tragedies in the work is of the union, right? You see that in those labor fest updates. They keep giving increasingly tragic labor fest updates. But the union, which was a kind of a staple of the community and did a lot of things, I mean, that's basically dissolved. And there's no, there's not really a, not a stopgap. There's not really a ready replacement for that organization and its role in the town. And so it's just a classic. I guess we could pose this in the simple cliched way of the chicken egg. It's like, well, what came first, Janesville's community spirit? Or the organizations that were there because of certain labor conditions and factories and then the unions, like, which of those things existed first, you know, and I don't know. I don't know if the work has an answer either. I think it maybe it kind of presupposes that the the Parker Pen Company and the plant together, like, created a groundswell or something, some conditions where a certain community could, could be stable and really successful and happy. Any final thoughts on the essays, Amanda? No, I think that was a lot of fun. It was, yeah. I had a blast. I had a blast thinking about it, and we'll continue those prompts in the future. We'll see what increasingly difficult questions we can give one another. <laughs> if anyone's <laughs> listening who's still a student in school, feel free to steal all of my work and plagiarize everything. That's fine by me. So go go wild. <laughs> I say I've given express consent for that. Let's do a couple more segments. We want to end with some stuff that's a little more outside the text. So those were kind of the analytical parts about the actual book. Hopefully that covered a lot of the the topics in it. I think we did a good job. Two final things I want to do. The third segment, I'm going to for now call the Lost Pages. I don't know. Is that a reference like Indiana Jones or something? Or the Lost World. There we go. It's Jurassic Park. I don't know where I came up with that. It's silly. Maybe we'll change the name. But the idea, I I think, is solid. I love the name. I love the name. The Lost Pages, right? (laughs) They got ripped out. They were burned on the, or they were cut on the editing room floor. This is the segment where we each get to pick a topic that is explicitly in the book but is not expanded upon as much as we wanted that could be a new chapter or its own book or something, and we'll kind of talk through that idea. Why don't you begin, Amanda? Which lost pages did you want to see in this book? Um, I had mentioned it um, as part of the literary knapsack, actually, for the the recommendation, but um, some of the government policies that she specifically names but doesn't actually, like, discuss necessarily um i think that 
I would have liked to have seen some more of that particular discussion just because it is important for the text itself because she does delve into um, some of the politics and some of the political upheaval as a result of the recession and as a result of GM leaving. I think that it would it's kind of important for the reader to be aware and have a basic understanding of of like Scott Walker's um, hatred of the unions and of Paul Ryan calling himself a financial wonk, and, but also like his steps in trying to also to support Scott Walker and some of his policies, some of Paul Ryan's policies regarding um, how to deal with the recession and like the money that's being funneled into uh, retraining some of these people. So yeah. I think that. I would have liked to have seen more of a discussion of that, just at least a bit more of an explanation um, because reading it on my own is okay. Like I can do that. Yeah, no problem. Um, but other readers might find, you know, if they look up the policies themselves, the way that they're written, it's not the way that this is written, right. Which is written so that everybody can understand. Um, yeah. And, and they go into some, it's such a great point too. A lot of the bigger national big picture policies are sort of summarized and yeah. mostly it's the local implementations that are focused upon and sort of here's how the grant money was spent or here's a qualification for the, you know, here's how we're going to spend this. When they get into the shine, they're sort of trying to bribe shine to come there. I forget what they call mm -hmm. it, like a city temptation package or a, who knows, a, a mating ritual dance or whatever the fuck they want to call it, <laughs> where they dangle money. You know, like, here's the money dangling We're going to tempt you and we're going to lure you into the town. But they, yeah. so they go into that with it because they show the city council meeting. They talk about the debates that happen, the financial package that's being offered. They, they show when the guy comes back and basically threatens to pull out or what, yeah. you know, or he, he of course has to counter by saying like, yeah, if you don't give this to me, we're going to go somewhere else. So this right. is it. And so those sort of happenings, I think, are well shown. But yes, if you want to get into all of Paul Ryan's effects on the government, man, that's like because because he went national, his effects became that scale. It would be a much bigger conversation. Right. But a even of, like a lot of tax cuts going around for large companies, let's say. Uh, yeah, a lot the, of those. The, the Republican MO. But um, <laughs> the, yeah. the thing that um, also like when. Who, what's the name of, is it Bob who's in charge of like the employment office there? Yeah, I think so. The, the, yeah, yeah. One of the more like kind of run ragged figures in the book who's trying to do a lot of good, but is just kind of overwhelmed. He, he at some point tries to meet up with Paul Ryan at that dinner and then kind of, I don't, I don't know if he ever did. Yeah, I don't, it, and there's no mention of them ever actually having yeah, that, yeah, probably uh, not. Uh, but um, yeah, he invites Paul Ryan to come to the to the center to see what he's right. doing. Um, but he he's frustrated. Bob is frustrated because even though yes, they're receiving money, the way that they are supposed to spend the money has so much like red tape, the the bureaucratic stranglehold on funds. So mm -hmm. and it's mentioned. But it doesn't actually explain like what those strangleholds necessarily are. So I was like really interested yeah, in that because yeah. yeah, I would like to know what kind of hoops they have to jump through in order for these people to get jobs and for people to, you know, be fed and to feel secure that they're not gonna lose their homes and stuff like that. So right, I found that right. interesting but also lacking. 
Yeah, there was one. I know they mentioned that Herb Cole at some point got some extra money to Blackhawk, kind of like an un, kind of like an unencumbered two million dollars, and they they were able to sneak that in, pork barrel that into some other bill. I don't, yeah. I don't know the page number for that, but I know that's what happened. And yeah. they mentioned that that program was even a, just a modest success, maybe not even a success. And they, I think it was that they allocated ten thousand extra dollars per student for like additional campus time, tutoring time, one-on-one time, like to really push them and to get them through their programs. Mm-hmm. And I think even they are like, well, it's it's a, like a mediocre. We've done a mediocre job placing them in good jobs and getting them through. Like I don't even that didn't seem to be the super boon to having you know 90 percent graduate success and everyone's in a perfect career and whatever else yeah. so yeah even that was kind of a modest success it's a it's a great point and yeah most of the big national policies are are not addressed in great detail here for i think narrative reasons right instead we get the gypsy yeah. driving home chapter yeah <laughs> yeah yeah which yeah. i again enjoyed except it made me fear for his life so yeah. <laughs> It kind of came out of nowhere and yeah, scared the scared the bejeebers out of me. Um, <laughs> me too. Yeah, for for my lost pages, I'll say because I've heard her name so much growing up, and I just never knew that much about her. It's Diane Hendricks. I would just like to read a profile of this person. At some point, she basically comes in and says, "Scott Walker, can we break up these unions?" And he's like, "Fuck yeah, lady, let's do this thing." They have like mm-hmm. their super villain meeting or whatever, their back alley super villain <laughs> underground lair or whatever metaphor meeting. And then later, she and that was on page one forty seven. She says that, but at some point at the in the epilogue, she donates almost two million dollars to Donald Trump's campaign, and then is on his inaugural committee, I think, or something like that. She is, I believe, wow. the most wealthy woman in the United States, so she's the richest American woman, I think, as of this recording of this podcast and i just frankly i know about her because of her local businesses and the abc supply stuff i have driven past her compound many times and i know this because when my, when we do it every time my mom will go oh that's where her compound is and there's like a big metal fence around the, it's just a huge wooded area she owns like this massive chunk of land where her home is so i it's like i it's like i know about her a lot and then i know almost nothing about her current sort of political sway and what she's what is she promoting really aggressively and what is she philanthropic about and she just seems like an interesting figure i don't think i would like her much i'm not looking to have a beer with her i don't think maybe (laughs) diane if you're listening you know you've got a lot of sway call me back to janesville and let's talk but no i i just wonder about her life and i they give a little backstory about her and her husband and their kind of co co-efforts and then he i think passed at a young age and so the, you know there's a touch of it here there's a page when she kind of the author i mean she gives a little detail about diane hendrix but she was the figure i was left wondering the most about she's kind of a mystery figure you know hooded hooded cloak yeah. kind of figure very rich like multi-billionaire yeah. so yeah she was uh the way that she's depicted in the book made me feel that i i probably would not uh be getting along with her um <laughs> right but yeah, yeah. you don't but like yeah, the puppet think... masters you know up in the rafters yeah. and yeah. <laughs> pulling a couple million here a couple million here let's just fuck around yeah. like fuck it you know i'm gonna yeah. rebuild downtown beloit just because like whatever yeah help out I my hometown that, <laughs> i i don't think that uh politically we would get along very well um but yeah i think that she's mentioned enough in the book especially in in conjunction with Mary, right? So Mary and and Diane both were the spearhead for um, Rock County 5.0, right? For, yes, that has yeah. taken on other names, but yes, and for uh, Janesville okay. stuff, but yeah, yeah, you got it. Yeah, so they like they worked together, but we got a lot more of Mary's 
background information. And I guess that's because yes. Mary is actually from Janesville. Well, um, and Diane is from Beloit, to be fair. I, I'm yeah. almost certain that's true. And that's, as the book details, they kind of become, they, the county that they're both a part of kind of tries to come together as one. But yes. Yeah. And I think Mary's just a more compelling figure, I, probably because she had access to her, frankly. I mean, we know that from the interviews and she talks to her kids and there's more emotional, personal scenes. The psychology mm-hmm. we, we both kind of didn't like. But yeah, I think she just gets more access to her. But what, what yeah. was the comparison you were drawing out? I'm sorry, I jumped on that. Uh, no, I, I just think that um, since they they were both working together, I think yeah, because Mary is from Janesville versus Diane. But still, I think that it would have been interesting to maybe have that perspective as well, or to have more detail about Diane because that would give us um, more detail into uh, the mindset of the, the rest of the towns and the County itself, instead of just a, a purely Janesville perspective. But I, I understand mm-hmm. you don't want to you know, branch out too much. You want to be really focused in on, on one area, but I think that could have added some, some interest. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. I think we both chose pretty good lost pages there and at least yeah. yours is, is out there. I don't even know if a full profile of Diane Hendricks is available. I've never Googled, but maybe I will after this now. Let's talk about the final segment then, Amanda. This is how we used to end our book club episodes, and we've continued that tradition here in the relaunched new Lightly Literary podcast. Critical assistance. We are going to end with quotes from other pieces about this work, criticism, reviews, newspaper articles, could even be like blogs and write-ups that we find online. I went back to the well for myself. I picked something from The New Yorker that I'll start by throwing out there. Yeah. There's a couple quotes here I really liked. I think the how this article by Joshua Rothman in The New Yorker, and the, the title of that article, for those who want to find it, is called Janesville and the Cost of American Optimism. And I don't remember the publication on that, but pretty recent when the book came out. I'm just going to pull, I think, the final paragraph of this article, which reads, quote, Janesville is a haunting in part because it's a success story. In the face of vast forces, globalization, automation, political dysfunction, and the Great Recession, the people of Janesville do nearly everything right. Reading Janesville, one is awed by the dignity and level-headedness of its protagonists, who seem to represent the best of America. At the same time, the narrative of Janesville unfolds within a larger, more fatalistic context. Matt Wopat's efforts at retraining are inspiring, but from the beginning, Doubtful. If it were that easy, there wouldn't be books like Janesville. And it's true, the haunting background of this whole thing is that if you start to ask questions even a little bit beyond the text, you're going to bump up against very ugly things that have no answer, like globalization and automation, which I think are kind of like silent specters looming over the whole book that the book itself never fully addresses. Yeah. D- did you think that those things came up in a really explicit way? No, definitely not. And I yeah. think that... She did that on purpose. She wanted to stay, I think, as neutral as possible. But yeah. Yeah, because as soon as you start asking some of those questions, that does become because some of those things live in hype um, in the imagine in the political imagination, like automation. We know it's here, but it's not fully here. So we're only left to kind of speculate and come up with hypothetical political and economic solutions to something that is definitely here, but hasn't fully decimated things yet. So we're kind of just in that limbo of like maybe we'll keep some of these jobs, and then at some point we also have to look at it and be like well we have to basically invent 20 million things to do because those jobs are going to go so we're just right. kind of left in this ugly in-between zone and i think the book chronicles that time period really well and, and i think to call the book about a success story I, I think is a fair summation of it or at least the level-headedness part i thought came across really well i mean i don't 
I feel like in this pod, I, I'm glad that I haven't had to give as much personal anecdotes about growing up in Janesville, but I think that summary description of the town, the people, and that sort of approach to life there, just sort of dignified and level-headed, maybe not fully dignified all the time, and there's a lot of beer consumption and bratwurst eating and all that whatever <laughs> stereotypical <laughs> stuff, but the level-headedness part, the kind of pragmatic nature of it, the kind of get through itiveness, toughness gumption, whatever you want to call it, I think, yeah, I think that came through. And that is maybe the truly depressing heart of the work is that even at its, even at the best, most innovative, kind of hardworking, well-intentioned, it doesn't really come out in the, come out in the clean for everybody. Did you find any quotes you wanted to talk through? Uh, Yeah, sure. But um, I also... Yeah, agree go with ahead. the 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 contrast there between um, the depiction of Janesville as being kind of this optimistic area, like uh, optimism, right? Mary's favorite thing, but um, <laughs> yeah, right. the the optimism, the hope, the the uncrushable spirit of the town versus the world around them just completely falling apart and things that they have no control over, government um, aid that is not really that helpful uh, politics that are changing the the way that we work and how businesses do their jobs and stuff like that it's it's a really nicely done contrast i think that goldstein did a really good job with highlighting the small town attitude of hey you know it's it's a bump in the road i can do this versus like all these big world machinations that are almost like closing in on the town too. I think that's a really, really nice contrast there. Yeah. This would make for some very obvious kind of college class style, read this book, but then here's a book about globalization and here's one about like, it's sort of, this has such obvious supplemental reads to go with it that I don't think the book fully addresses, but on purpose it's, you know, it's both an economic lesson, but also very just a personal emotional journey of some people trying to, trying to get by. And so I think it ends up in a great middle ground. And it's as we discussed in the first episode anyway, and if you've made it this far, I'm sure you've read the book listener, but it's just so (laughs) readable, you know, it's like a very accessible newspaper style. And it just kind of the narrative just kind of holds your hand and walks you along and thoughts from, from your quote, Amanda, what'd you pull from? Sure. Um, I chose one from the New York Times. Um, It's called in Janesville when the GM plant closed havoc followed. And that's by Jennifer senior. Um, and so one of the things, one of the last paragraphs, she said, you will learn a lot about the arbitrary rules and idiosyncrasies of our government programs from this book. They have as many treacherous cracks and crevices as a glacier and offer about as much warmth. And I, I pulled that one because it ties in with my lost pages thing where, yes, we see that the arbitrary rules and idiosyncrasies hurt more so than the programs help in a lot of ways. Um, But I kind of disagree with the, you will learn a lot about them because I felt like I did not get a chance to learn a lot about them without doing my own research. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I don't think I came away with too much. Uh, There are certain policies though. When I think back now about how towns have to, to bid and compete that comes up and there's the GM bid, there, there are certain polit- – I guess if you came in with almost no knowledge of just, I don't know, economic policy, towns and how towns are run or what I, – I could see somebody walking away from this 
depending on your starter level of knowledge and thinking, wow, there's all kinds of things, grants, I didn't know about all this grant stuff and how tech colleges work. And I guess it just depends on your starter level. But I think as we've discussed and you nailed, the national level policies are just not here. They're just glossed over. Yeah. And um, I pulled another quote too, because it reminded me of something that we discussed in part one. And so the the Mm -hmm. quote is, Perhaps the most powerful aspect of Janesville is its simple chronological structure, which allows Goldstein to show the chain reaction that something so calamitous as a plant closing can affect. Each falling domino becomes a headstone signifying the death of the next thing. So you had mentioned um, in the previous podcast episode about the the chronological structure. You weren't 100% sold on it because you wanted to see more of like almost like mini novellas of each person. Um, so yeah. I was just wondering whether you felt that I the chronological structure was for the pretty good scope, by the end. For how many people she wanted to document, I think this was the way. The version I was imagining, I guess, was like, well, strip, basically th- pick maybe three people. And it's sort of like, here's what could happen to the worker at the plant. Here's what could happen to like a white collar, maybe like the finance, the Mary, you know, trying to help the businesses and whatever. And here's what could happen to the kids or, so, you know, the youth. And it's sort of like, I could see it working out that way. But I think, you know, ultimately, if you can track the people's names and just keep some of those mnemonics going to like stay on track with that, it's totally fine, very readable and... I, I don't know. I thought it worked really well. I guess I don't have a preference, but yeah, in the beginning, I was imagining another way. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. Any cool. final That's thoughts it. on the, on the criticism there from the times? Nope. All good. The job training stuff, as she notes, is uh, the great tragedy of the book, but a sobering thing that most people need to understand better because just go to school while it is a boost and a boon for, for so many who do it is just, it's never going to be a perfect answer, silver bullet. So that it's sobering to acknowledge, but something we got to try and work through too. No job guarantees, no very high risk still. So, okay. Any final thoughts on Janesville and American story? I feel like we've covered a couple good pods here. A lot of good talk, a lot of uh, insightful chatter. Any thoughts on my hometown? Anything you want to say before we, (laughs) before we close the Janesville chapter? It sounds like a, a really interesting place. It is. It's you know, it's it's American. It's pretty ordinary America, but I think the book gave a very fair and sort of almost fun in a way. In some ways, fun to see your hometown described in such detail and with such care and caution. Uh, they they missed a lot in terms of just the sort of I don't know this. It, there wasn't a lot about social aspects, right? There wasn't a lot about. I mean, there's the yeah. labor fest stuff, but there wasn't a lot about like you know, how do people have fun? What do people do for fun? And that it's just not a focus on that. And that's fine. So I was missing sort of the, I don't know, the cultural stuff about what goes on in the town. And I'm not saying there's immense cultural activity in Southern, small Southern Wisconsin, but yeah. Anyway, that was the only thing I thought about. Like, again, the fact that they only mentioned the Packers once, I guess that's maybe enough, but, or the fact that they don't mention, I don't know, like going to tailgating or going to the Madison games or eating bratwurst or drinking beer. They don't really mention bar, the bar scene. People like living out of bars in Wisconsin in the winter uh, for better and worse, uh, probably worse now uh, in the COVID times. But yeah, some of that I thought was missing, maybe some of the character of it, but incredibly thoughtful, really well done narrative of it. So not going to definitely won't complain. 
Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Yeah, and I think I've said said my piece on this one. This was a really enjoyable read and a great relaunch. I'm not going to say we're going to do more nonfiction than fiction, but I did, given the prompt you gave me, which was pick pick a book about a place you've been to, I couldn't resist picking this since yeah, it was award-winning and everything. And so I don't know how much nonfiction we'll be doing. We'll try and keep an even keel, but we are headed, for example, in our next pick to the world of fiction. Do you want to tell us what we're reading next, Amanda? Yes. Um, we're going to be reading Hard Boiled Wonderland and The End of the World, and that's by Haruki Murakami. Would you like to say anything about it other than I'm, the really long title? I'll repeat it once before we close out in case, because it's such an odd name, but any, any thoughts on it so far? I'm enjoying it. Um, I am enjoying it, and it's uh, it's a surreal, um, it's, in, yeah, it's about surrealism, but not overly so there are some realistic aspects to help balance that out but uh yeah i'm I'm enjoying it uh a lot a lot more than uh i thought i would based on like the first page (laughs) yeah it's it certainly is a high bar to clear up front so think of it let's use a hurdles analogy like in track and field it's as if the first hurdle is so tall you have to run under it but the rest of them are normal size yeah, From there, it's, yeah. its level of weirdness is manageable. But yeah, the yeah. first, this is a classic. When I was a teacher, this is a classic thing I'd have to say, which is it, you have to give a book 50 pages, you know, and that might not honestly be true. I think you can learn a lot about an author way sooner than 50 pages. But that was what I was told my kids it was kind of just pick an arbitrary number. It was kind of like, well, give it 50 pages. If you're not feeling it by then, then go, uh, let it go. I think yeah. this book is a good example of that. <laughs> it's yeah. Like, yeah. It, don't give it 20 because you're not going to have a handle on anything. And so if you can at least get to about 50 you know then it it might win you over by then i for my part i'm halfway through i won't say anything more than that and because you know we're going to read it whether we like it or not but i we chose well as we've been saying for the new podcast we're picking things that are interesting and well regarded and so we're not we're not picking duds here so it is a challenging start but i think it's paying off already in some small ways so for sure the dates for that, by the way, let me just quick reminder before we close out. That is, again, Hard-Boiled Wonderland and the End of the World. That is a novel by Haruki Murakami. The book recommendation for that will be coming on 2-15. So the 15th of this month, we'll be putting out the persuasion about why you should read it with us. And then the first part of the book club for the first half of the novel will be on the 19th, which, you know, you certainly don't have to have read it by that time, but maybe by the weekend, join us with part one. And then part two will be a follow-up. I don't have that date written down, but I'm going to look it up now. So part two of the book club will come on Friday, the 26th. As a reminder, we are doing the book clubs now every Friday. So you'll get part one on one Friday, part two on the next Friday. Thank you so much, as always, for listening and following along, and we will see you between the pages.